The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, the U.S. is kicking off the holiday season. Americans are on the move. Travel is up, COVID cases are up, and so is the pressure on airlines. President of the Association of Flight Attendants. We may actually see flights canceled if there's enough demand because there's not enough staff in place. Founder of DTX, the company behind the ubiquitous and pandemic-friendly QR code, is kicking off a holiday shopping season unlike any other. Former Oath CEO Tim Armstrong. Consumers are really looking for trusted brands and trusted authorities in different areas. Plus, PayPal's betting on cryptocurrency. And CEO Dan Schulman says the movement is only just beginning. There is no question that people are flocking to digital payments and digital forms of currency. Those stories, plus a new role for former Fed Chair Janet Yellen, new concerns for ski season, and a new man nearing the top of the world's richest list. He's gained, I think, something like $100 billion over the course of this year. It's Tuesday, November 24th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box. This is CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Mike Santoli and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe's out today. President-elect Biden, he can now officially begin his transition. This coming after the General Services Administration Chief Emily Murphy sent what's called a letter of ascertainment. Now, the move makes more than $7 million in federal funding available for Biden's transition into office. President Trump tweeted that he backed Murphy's decision, but he is still not conceding the race to Biden said that his legal case will continue. If you haven't read the letter, uh, it is a fascinating read uh, from the head of the GSA um, about the decision that she said that she made on her own. She says without pressure. Uh, Meantime, the other big political story of the morning, President-elect Biden set to name Fed Chair Janet Yellen as his nominee for Treasury Secretary. If confirmed, she would become the first woman to hold that post. What a milestone. Yellowstone, uh, Yellen was, of course, confirmed by the Senate in 2014 as Fed Chair, a job that she held until the end of her first term uh, in 2017. Now, the Biden team had also reportedly been considering, as you might remember, Lael Brannard and Roger Ferguson for the top Treasury position. Uh, but, uh, Mike, I watched you guys as that news was uh, crossing the tape, uh, talking about the role that she might play in uh, the way markets think about her. She seems to be, I would argue, right down the middle. Um, she is uh, liked by the business community and the markets to some degree. She is uh, liked by, 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 by Democrats for the most part. There's some people who may think she's either uh, too centrist. I mean, th- th- yeah. you're going to get it on all sides. But uh, 
but maybe that's a good thing I would when, say, when you're not when you're not right. I would say she's right down the middle in the spectrum of likely candidates. That's that's for sure. And in a known quantity, somebody who has a reputation of of caring a lot about making sure the economy kind of runs to maximum potential. Uh, so therefore, you know, in the stimulus mode right now at this moment we're in. Uh, but also somebody I think if there's this general view that there probably makes sense to have a little more coordination uh, and teamwork between the Fed and the Treasury. That's already been going on in this crisis, right. and there's a sense that maybe there should be a more formalized framework. She's somebody who would probably represent that. But certainly, you know, uh, on the progressive side, I think folks were hoping for uh, perhaps somebody else, but I don't think that there's any outright objections right. to Janet Yellen just because she has such uh, you know, yeah, great experience. Wouldn't you say part, of the, she, part of the big issue was that no one on the progressive side they're, one of their key things was they wanted someone who didn't have any Wall Street experience. And, and that's a pretty tricky situation right. to have a Treasury secretary at this moment in time, given the potential for things to potentially go haywire. Um, that's a pretty tall ask. She, she may not have worked on Wall Street, but she certainly has had some experience with knowing what happens with the markets, having been through and lived through some of this in the past. I, I guess I would throw that out to you guys. What what do you think of that, and, and, and where does that come down? Is she going to be prepared to handle markets if they go haywire? Look, I, I think that she's as prepared to handle this as anybody. She lived through the financial crisis. Uh, she's been through. Yeah. Uh, she's been at the Fed uh, for so very long. Uh, you know, she's, she's considered, obviously, relatively dovish, though I know, Mike, you made the point, I think, yesterday uh, that there was that, that, that moment where she pushed for uh, a rate hike at, at one point. And on the other side, she's been, uh, to, to some degree, tough on the banks. You could look at what she did with Wells Fargo, literally on her way out uh, of the Federal Reserve, uh, imposing uh, what some people today think are unfair restrictions on that bank. And so I think for those reasons alone, I put her, as, as you guys said, right down the middle. Yeah. Um, and that's why, I mean, again, just the known quantity factor is, is something that, that, you know, I don't think yesterday's rally was about yelling, but definitely we got a little bit of a boost after that, that news came out. And it's just sort of peeling away small bits of residual uncertainty, you know, in a strong seasonal period for the markets anyway. And that, that also qualifies, I guess, for the GSA move, uh, getting this transition. Elon Musk passing Bill Gates to become the world's second richest person. Musk started the year in 35th place on the index. He's gained, I think something like $100 billion over the course of this year. The Tesla CEO has, of course, profited from the surge in Tesla stock, which is up 520% this year. The shares were up just yesterday by 6%, boosting Musk's net worth by $7.2 billion. His fortune is now estimated at $127.9 billion. That's $200 million more than Gates. Gates has been giving away his money. More than $27 billion of his fortune has gone to the Gates Foundation back since 2006. Mike? Wow. It's, uh, it's kind of amazing. It wasn't that long ago uh, we were talking about him having margin loads and maybe having to uh, sell stock to meet them anyway. <laughs> As we approach the Thanksgiving holiday, data from CNBC and its partners reveal that domestic travel by train, plane, and automobile is up, but it's still down significantly from what it was this time last year. As COVID cases rise across the nation, the CDC has urged Americans to refrain from traveling and gathering this Thanksgiving. Despite the warnings, in a CNBC survey, 62% of people hosting holiday guests from outside their own households said they're taking no special precautions ahead of the gathering. Almost 80% of guests going to other people's homes for the holiday said they're taking no special precautions before arrival. Here's Becky Quick. 
Despite the warning coming from the CDC, the TSA screened over a million passengers on Sunday. That's the highest number since March. If you want to get a look at COVID-19 concerns during the Thanksgiving Day travel and the airline industry's push for more virus aid before the end of the year, for that we welcome Sarah Nelson. She is the international president of the Association of Flight Attendants. And, and Sarah, this is the conundrum here. You may be concerned about what's happening if a lot of people are traveling right now, but if they're not, you don't have jobs. Where do you come down on this argument? Well, this is not a normal time at all, Becky. I mean, we are just back to not even 40% of the demand that we were a year ago. And as you noted, business travel is not happening. So the revenues are just half of that. So the airlines, without any government aid, are making decisions. They've gone out and gotten a lot of liquidity to try to stabilize the airlines because they are losing money every single day but they're trying to cut as many costs as they can. And when the requirements of the federal relief ended on September 30th, that meant mass furloughs, but they're, they've also asked for unpaid leaves as well. So we're actually running at quite short staff. And the other thing that is colliding right now, ironically, is that we are short staffed. We've got more people who have to sit out on sick leave. We've got more generous sick leave policies that are now under strain because of the cost cutting. And so we may actually see flights canceled if there's enough demand, um, even with that leisure travel over the holidays, because there's not, not enough staff in place. The other issue, too, is who that you, because we you, don't let, have... Sarah, just on that point alone, who, let, let's, I want to get the rest of your thoughts on this, but just on that point alone, who do you blame for that, for the, for the, not enough, for the, staff, the staffing shortage? That's, that's a big deal. Is it the airline's fault or is the government at fault for not stepping in and helping? Well, the government's at fault. Uh, this is the, the airlines are doing what they need to do in this market. This market is not a rational market. This is the major disruptor, uh, bigger disruptor than we've seen in over 100 years. And so there is no way to make the airlines operate during this pandemic with any kind of rational uh, thought here and continued thought to safety layers um, that, that, um, without that government help. So the government relief that we got in place is very different than the rest of the bailout packages for other corporations. What we did was a workers first package and it covered 70% of the payroll. It required the airlines to keep everyone on their jobs, connected to their health care, still paying taxes, still paying their rent, so helping the economy and also providing that slack so that the government could also require that the airlines continue to serve all the communities. So all of those requirements are gone. And now what the government needs is these airlines to distribute a vaccine so that we can get the virus can, contained, get out of this massive economic disruptor um, and health, public health disruptor, and actually get this under control. That's not going to happen unless we get the jumbo jets back up in the air and unless we are able to use all of the aircraft in place in the U.S. to distribute that vaccine. I thought it was FedEx and UPS that were going to be largely responsible for distributing the vaccine, not the so major what's carriers. It, what's interesting about that, Becky, is that they will say that, and, and even the United States government will say that, FedEx and UPS only is able to operate when they use the commercial aircraft. They actually outsource some of that, a lot of that uh, cargo to the passenger aircraft. So FedEx and UPS cannot meet the demand alone. And uh, IATA has been very clear on this. This is going to require all of the aircraft, all the commercial aircraft around the world. And they have warned that if governments don't take action to get people off of furlough, 
uh, pilots, mechanics, flight attendants. We all have to have our safety credentials in place. We've got to have our currency with being able to fly those aircraft. And if we don't get that back in place and make sure that the government is ensuring that everyone is called back to service and able to service those planes, those planes are, a lot of those planes are sitting in the desert right now. That's going to take a heavy lift to get them back in place. And we're not going to be able to distribute the vaccine fast enough to get us out of this crisis. Sarah, let me, let me ask you a question. We often have conversations that are put uh, to some degree in moral terms uh, about uh, what's required uh, to help, for example, uh, your constituents, uh, the moral obligations related to potentially the distribution of the vaccine, though I, I will say there is, a, there is a debate about whether FedEx uh, and UPS can handle this on, on their own. So, so I, just, I, I just do want to clarify that point. But Let's let's assume that that is that 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 is the moral argument uh, and you're on the right side, if you will. Do you think that there's a moral argument to be made that from a capacity perspective, the airlines actually should not be increasing capacity, but should actually be reducing capacity for passengers, given the wild spread of this pandemic in the United States from a healthcare perspective, given what the CDC has said uh, and and everything else? I think, Andrew, that that is what was intended in March, is that we would actually take actions for public health and provide that support from the government in, in order to be able to do that. We've been missing that cohesive government plan. Uh, Joe Biden has that plan, but we're looking at waiting until January 20th to even start to get that in place. And the truth is that uh, regular public businesses, uh, private businesses, cannot make those decisions on their own when you're down 60% in demand and even more than that in revenue. As you know, those pressures do not lead to good public health decisions. So I would agree with the moral argument here, um, actually the very practical argument about how to get this virus under control. But that is not going to happen unless we get the relief in place. And again, I just want to remind everyone this is a workers first program that actually capped executive pay, banned stock buybacks and dividends, and required that that government funding only go to supporting those workers. In return, Sarah, no, the no, airlines I, are providing the critical infrastructure. Right. I appreciate that. I think the point that I'm making is one of the things you're seeing is the airlines are increasing capacity during the holidays. They're not just increasing the capacity in terms of planes in the air. They're increasing the capacity in terms of seats that they are filling. What I'm asking you, since you've made many moral arguments on this program, is from a health care perspective. Let's say we'll take care of your people. Do you think it is yeah. in the service of America and the health of Americans to put more and more people on airplanes at a time when COVID is spreading like wildfire? That's my question to you. I will make two points on that, Andrew. I agree with you 100 percent that we should be taking actions for public health first and foremost, because the virus is the problem here. Secondly, I would say that in, if you want to look at the conditions on board the aircraft, when you have that support, the airlines have been able to put in place layered safety procedures that make it one of the most controlled environments in the country. Sarah, let me turn around. Do, 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 you, do you support the CDC's decision to tell passengers uh, not to get on airplanes this, this holiday season? <laughs> Well, let's be very clear. I think every business across America supports the CDC's decision on that. And that is why we're seeing decreased revenues, because business travel is not taking place. And rational people understand what needs to be done here in order to get public health 
uh, policy in place that can control the virus. So, yes, I support that. But with it, I'm being very clear that it is just not possible unless this government takes action right now to extend the payroll support program. Sarah, you know, I guess there's a long line of people waiting to hear something and have something done. Congress has not done it to this point. I don't know that it's going to happen right after, but we appreciate your time and we appreciate your making the case. Good to see you. Good to see you, Becky. Next on Squawk Pod, PayPal CEO Dan Schulman's vision for crypto opportunities. When you start to move crypto as a potential funding instrument, I think that bolsters its utility and stabilizes it um, as well. It becomes less volatile because it can be used every day in your purchases. We're back after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. Some of the world's biggest investors and market watchers have been sounding off recently on the utility of Bitcoin. All this commentary, it's worth noting, follows PayPal's announcement that a month ago, about a month ago, that it would allow users to buy, sell, and hold cryptocurrency on its platform. Joining us right now is the man behind that very decision, PayPal CEO Dan Shulman. Dan, it's great to see you this morning. Uh, we have watched the run-up in value of Bitcoin since you made that announcement, the idea of it being adopted uh, much more globally, and the view, I think, that other rivals of yours and others in the financial community are going to be coming in at some point behind you. We'll see whether they do. But let me just ask you just straight up about the value proposition of Bitcoin, because a lot of people say, what is its true value? What is the inherent value of Bitcoin? Uh, how do you value it? I know you own some yourself. How do you value it? Yeah. Well, I think all forms of money uh, are based on uh, trust and uh, and uh, set uh, values that come from that trust. I think if you take a step back, Andrew, um, especially with the pandemic, you've seen the use of cash decline precipitously, something like 40 to 70% of consumers no longer want to handle cash. Um, and just like every industry is digitizing right now, that is also happening in the financial services world. Um, there is no question that people are flocking to digital payments and digital forms of currency. And one of the things that we looked at and we talked to regulators around the world, central banks around the world, um, and it became clear to me that it's a matter of, you know, uh, not if, but when and how you'll start to see more and more central banks issue forms of digital currencies. And I think you'll have more and more utility happen with cryptocurrencies. One of the things that we allowed um, is not just making it easy to buy, sell and hold cryptocurrencies, but very importantly, early next year, we're going to allow cryptocurrencies to be a funding source for any transaction happening on all 28 million of our merchants. 
And that will significantly bolster the utility of cryptocurrencies. Dan, but just to put a fine point on that, because then you start to talk about Bitcoin not as an asset uh, or commodity, rather, but as a, as, a, as a true currency, if you will. However, I, I think it's worth explaining to the audience that you don't intend for, if, for example, I had Bitcoin and I was going to buy a pizza over PayPal for me to use my Bitcoin to actually pay the merchant and them, for them to receive Bitcoin. I, my understanding is that I would pay in Bitcoin and you would immediately transact into U.S. dollars. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct, Andrew. So what would happen is um, you would buy, uh, say, Bitcoin on our platform and you'd hold it. And that Bitcoin would have a certain amount of value. And say you wanted to make a transaction at any of our merchants, we would tell you exactly how much of that Bitcoin you need to make that transaction. And we would then immediately translate that amount of Bitcoin into fiat currency. And so the volatility goes away. You know exactly how much you need for that transaction. It would be converted into fiat. And then we would use that fiat currency, U.S. dollar, for instance, to make the transaction at the retailer. So the retailer doesn't have to accept a new form of currency like, like crypto. They're basically doing this in fiat currency. Um, they don't have to worry about volatility anymore. But the consumer now has a, another funding instrument, just like uh, uh, cash uh, or a debit card or whatever it may be in their PayPal wallet to be able to use to make a transaction. So we're making it very simple so, and easy for people right. to utilize crypto as a funding source. Dan, I appreciate the, the bull case in that scenario, but I also appreciate that there's a bear case in that scenario because it suggests that fiat currency is here to stay in a very meaningful way. And I wanted to ask you about a comment that Jamie Dimon made uh, last week to me uh, when we we're talking about Bitcoin. JP Morgan's been supportive of crypto and, and increasingly even Bitcoin itself. His concern, I think longer term, and I don't want to speak for him, but is this idea that if it ever uh, gets to a quote unquote escape velocity of sorts, that regulators could come in, given that they have their own interests in a fiat currency, as you might imagine? Well, I think it's foundational uh, that we work hand in hand with regulators. I mean, our move into the crypto space happened because we worked hand in hand with New York Department of Financial Services, received the first right. uh, conditional bit license to go and do this. I don't think you can manage and move money without working hand in hand with regulators, whether that be uh, regulators. But, but I think the question uh, is whether a uh, United States or, or but I think the question is whether central banks around the country, around the world, rather, at some point may say, you know what, we're not doing it this way or may seek to effectively crowd out a Bitcoin, if you will, by making their own currencies digital. And what you think that does for the value of something like a Bitcoin and then, of course, all of the customers who seem to be on PayPal now using it to buy up Bitcoins. Yeah. Well, I do think as paper money slowly uh, dissipates and, uh, and disappears from how people are using transactions, central banks, especially on the retail side, um, will need to replace paper money with forms of digital uh, fiat uh, currency. Let's be clear, these are two, both crypto and CBDCs or central bank digital currencies 
are digital currencies, but they're very different forms of digital currency. Central bank digital currencies are fiat currency that's digitized. Uh, cryptocurrencies aren't backed uh, by a central bank or a government. By the way, both may play important roles going forward. Some of the underlying infrastructure, more modern infrastructure um, that backs some of these cryptocurrencies, the ability to do smart contracts um, may enhance some uh, transactions, the ability to digitize assets, may more democratize the ability to buy different assets uh, for more and more people. It may be more inclusive, bringing people in who are outside the financial system today. So I think there's a lot of potential benefits as we move more and more to digital currencies. But I will say, right. foundationally, this needs to be done hand in hand with regulators and governments. Dan, before I let you go, and it's really back to the first question about value, I know people who will tell me that one day Bitcoin, each Bitcoin will be worth a million dollars a Bitcoin. And I know others who will tell me that every Bitcoin in the end, uh, you know, could be worth $10, $100, What do you think? Well, you know, it's so hard to project uh, the future. Here, here's what I do think. I think that um, there will be more and more use cases for cryptocurrencies. I think if they're just an asset class, then the volatility of that investment can go up or down. But as they become more and more utilized in everyday commerce, you know, and this is the promise of what we're doing on the PayPal platform, I think they start to move from being um, less of just an asset class and more into a currency. And when you start to move crypto as a potential funding instrument, I think that bolsters its utility and stabilizes it um, as well. It becomes less volatile because it can be used every day in your purchases. And so I think as that begins to happen, you'll see it be more stable and perhaps, you know, maybe not have these sudden swings up and down. But I, I think in general, um, it probably becomes more valuable than less over time. But again, you know, it's an investment right now. Investments go up and investments right. go down. Dan Shulman, it's always great to see you. Thank, Thank you, you, Andrew. Coming up, kicking off a holiday shopping season unlike any other with Tim Armstrong, former CEO of Oath. There's a $300 billion industry popping up right now, which is contactless. And I think the solutions around contactless are super important. And some trivia for you. How many pounds of turkey were consumed in the U.S. on Thanksgiving last year? The answer when Squawk Pod returns. You cook that turkey because you have to. And then you have to have turkey leftovers for the next week. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.
At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. You're listening to Squawk Pod with Becky Quick, Andrew Ross Sorkin, and Mike Santoli. Here's Becky. How many pounds of turkey were consumed in the United States on Thanksgiving last year? The answer, 1.4 billion pounds. That's roughly 46 million turkeys with the average turkey weighing 30 pounds. And guys, just for honesty in this whole thing, it's not 1.4 billion pounds that were consumed on Thanksgiving Day. We cooked it on Thanksgiving Day, but you know just like I do. You cook that turkey because you have to. And then you have to have turkey leftovers for the next week. That's four pounds for every person in the country. Turkey tetrazzini. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So that's the gross weight of the turkey turkey that was cooked and served. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Okay. And not eaten on that day. How do you feel about fried turkey? Are you are you guys into fried turkey? Never had it. Never had it either. Yeah. Never tried it. Either have I? I ask because it's something I've always sort of thought I wanted, but I haven't done it yet. It's supposed to be dangerous, right? Anyway. Um, You got to be careful. Speaking of holiday traditions, it's just about ski season. The ski and snowboard resorts are a nearly $3.5 billion industry in the U.S. alone. But this year, snow sports are going to look a lot different. You might be familiar with QR codes. They're the little square barcodes plastered on pretty much every outdoor dining table or business window nowadays. You can scan the square with your smartphone camera and with one tap, you'll immediately find the business's menu or login page. It's become ubiquitous amid the pandemic when high touch surfaces like menus and clipboards are more worrisome than convenient. DTX, the company founded by former Oath CEO Tim Armstrong, is the company behind these QR codes, and he's recently partnered with Olympic ski champion and entrepreneur Bodie Miller. Miller's using these QR codes to make the 2020 snow sports season a little safer for skiers and snowboarders and a little more profitable for the businesses who supply them. Here's Andrew. The National Retail Federation predicting that online and other non-store sales will increase between 20 to 30 percent this holiday shopping season. And uh, joining us right now to discuss the state of retail and consumer in this pandemic is Tim Armstrong, founder and CEO of DTX Company. He's brought a special guest with him this morning, Olympic ski champion Bodie Miller. It's great to see you both. Tim, tell us what's going on and tell us uh, why and how uh, you've partnered with Bodie. Sure, Andrew, great to be here. And uh, Bodie's been a very special uh, partner of ours. And you just said it, you know, we're, we're here to talk about one thing, which is we're probably standing in front of the biggest cyber week ever. Q- Q3 retail sales were up 36%. And there's an 80-20 happening right now, which is e-commerce. Visits are up 80% year over year. Store visits are down 20%. So consumers are really looking for trusted brands and trusted authorities in different areas. We came on CNBC a couple of weeks ago to talk about Flowcode TV and the $300 billion TV space. Bodie is our partner in the $20 billion space of snow sports. And uh, Bodie represents, in my mind, the, the new retail channel, which is he's an authority at snow sports and people trust him as an authenticated uh, 
voice in that space. And so Bodhi's been using our product Flow Code and Flow Page to very simply introduce people to his new products and services. And I'll give him one quick intro before Bodhi takes over is Bodhi has developed technology in Skio. And I know you're a big skier, Andrew, which is really the Peloton and Strava of the ski industry that's uh, launching. Bodhi worked on it last year. It's coming out in a bigger force this year. And second of all, he's created direct-to-consumer ski partnership and uh, skis that he's developed with uh, Cross and Skis. So, you know, Bodhi's somebody who's in the direct-to-consumer part of the retail economy, which is the fastest-growing part of uh, e-commerce. And uh, Bodhi is a partner of ours because he represents both the influence to get to millions of skiers, but also he's developed products specifically um, for the DTC landscape and, and really uses our products to get them out there. And I'll let you uh, ask Bodhi about it. Hey, so Bodhi, tell us about the business that you're running, the products that you're building, and what the marketplace looks like during COVID for, for you. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm in all kinds of things. I kind of always have been, but I think the concern's the same for everybody. You know, no one knows how to adapt to COVID. I think what we're in kind of an inflection point um, in the U.S., especially between people not wanting to be monitored, but yet still wanting freedom to do things in a time where there's huge risk for everyone. So with Flowcode combined in with these other products that I'm sort of working with, we see it as an opportunity for people to kind of dip their toe in and say, you know what? I'm okay with this direct you know, direct communication. Uh, everyone's getting more and more comfortable with it. And at the same time, it's going to allow us to open resorts and, and kind of keep track of people in an effective, responsible way so that we can have our freedoms and kind of go out and enjoy the things we love to do. I mean, that's my biggest concern is that, you know, we don't have the information or the ability to, to tell people when they've been at risk or when they haven't. And that's going to affect resorts all across the country. And I think you know, striking that balance is going to be the challenge this winter. I know I'm going to be up there skiing, um, but I definitely want to know if I've put myself at risk or, or you know, someone around me is, is uh, you know, infected with COVID. So, you know, between the two, it's been a it's been a magical fit. So hold on, just just to put a fine point on the how does this work? So if I if I were to have run into you at the lodge? I mean, how does, am I going to get told? How, how, what, are you, what, what are you saying exactly? Well, so there's, uh, I'll touch on two things. The first is if you're on the chairlift with me and you're like, hey, those look like cool skis, you can take your phone out. We have a flow code in the graphic of the ski. So you can take a, you know, scan the flow code, takes you to a flow page that has a whole bunch of information. And you could have the skis on the way to your house with a 30-day money-back guarantee before you get off the top of the lift. Um, and then conversely, we're working with resorts to, as everyone's done in, in restaurants, you, you click the flow code or you click the QR code, which is against the wooden ski version of, of QR codes. And, it, you know, now we're transitioning to flow codes that takes you to a flow page that informs you of all the capacity at restaurants, um, responsible behavior in the mountain, but also will give you um I guess, passive feedback on if you've been exposed, if you've been in any situations where COVID right. has been present so you can adapt. So it's, like I said, it's been a, it's been a pretty interesting thing from the product side of things. It's, I think it's the cleanest, quickest way to give people information without having it feel like you're trying to sell them something. And that's always been my intention. I just want people to know right. what I like skiing on and how I like doing things. And if they approve or want to join, absolutely. Okay, real quick, because this is a very selfish question. How concerned are you, for those of us who love to ski and go out to either Utah or Colorado and go out west, 
How concerned are you that the rates of COVID are going to get so high, potentially, that you see the government, either you see the government effectively lock down uh, the, the slopes, or you see the slopes, that, you know, the companies that run these slopes decide to lock them down or limit the capacity to such a degree that it's almost impossible to get on the slopes? Yeah, I think people are facing that already right now with trying to book things. Um, I think it's going to be a matter of how well they adapt and what protocols they have in place to inform people of the risk, you know, because there's going to be cases. We all know that. But if you can track those cases really effectively, really quickly and keep people informed, I think you have a chance to have, uh, you know, have a great season. It's just we've been struggling with how to how to manage that that conundrum because nobody wants their you know, nobody wants Big Brother. They don't want people tracking them all the time, but they do want to feel safe and be informed. And the resorts need to know that they're not going to have a, a super spreader where they just don't know what's going on and people are coming out positive everywhere. That's what's going to lead to shutdown. So, um, again, you know, not to over pitch it, but this is a really nice solution that came along at the perfect time uh, to, I think, adjust for that. What Bodie's hitting on also, and this is big in the retail businesses, you know, there's a $300 billion industry popping up right now which is contactless and i think the solutions around contactless are super important every human being has a mobile phone with them and we've seen in our business with flow code we have everybody from beauty counter greg renfro's company on the west coast all the way through good morning america through turner sports is using it on the match this week for golf all the way to in boston the, the catholic church is using flow codes to allow people to give you know, at church, I think this this mega trend around how do you take contactless during COVID and turn it right. into something super fast and easy is, is super important. And I do want to ask, given all of this, you know, we see, we do see a lot of cash savings in the bank that people have saved money during this period. For those who have been lucky enough to be able to do so, do you think this is a big spending Christmas or not? Biggest spending Christmas ever. E-commerce is growing. This is a this is a, there's a lot of money stacked right. up for Christmas or holidays. Okay. Tim, thank you. Bodie, thank you. Uh, I hope we hit the slopes this, this, this winter somehow, somehow. Appreciate it, guys. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a rating and a review wherever you listen. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.